Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Tami Kuza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. A petition filed in the Nairobi High Court by a Kenyan journalist challenging the ICC's request to extradite him to The Hague takes a new turn. And the force commander of UN troops during Rwanda's genocide has placed the blame for the catastrophe at the door of the organization's member states. In sports news, new mentally needed for new mentality needed for Ethiopia to change fortunes around in the Chan tournament. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Ugandan lawmakers have endorsed a decision by the government to deploy troops in neighboring South Sudan. The Ugandan MPs supported the country's defense ministry, despite earlier warning by the United Nations Security Council regarding external intervention in the war-ravaged country. According to Ugandan constitution, only the parliament has the mandate to deploy troops outside the borders of the African country. Ugandan opposition lawmakers objected to the decision, saying the troops can be sent for peacekeeping missions according to law, but cannot engage in combat operations. More than two and a half million people in the Central African Republic require food, health care and other humanitarian aid. This is according to a joint assessment by the World Food Programme and the UN Humanitarian Affairs Office. The study says displaced people in the capital, Bangui, also need in immediate survival assistance. WFP spokesperson Elizabeth Byers expressed concern about adequate nutrition for vulnerable people, such as children and new mothers. The average number of meals has declined uh, from two to three to just one meal per day for 90% of those uh, surveyed in the uh, rapid assessment. The quality of food is also of concern because it's poorer and uh, it's a risk for the nutrition of these people and in particular those who are more fragile like children, uh, lactating women or pregnant women. A new law in Nigeria could prevent lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender LGBT people's access to HIV services. This according to two entities working to combat the spread of HIV and AIDS, who say the law further criminalizes LGBT people, organizations and activities, as well as supporters, Diane Penn reports. UNAIDS and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria add that it could also undermine the success of a comprehensive response plan for HIV and AIDS launched by Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan less than a year ago. They say the law could also lead to increased homophobia, discrimination, denial of HIV services and violence based on real or perceived sexual orientation and gender identity. 
The Liberian Supreme Court has suspended the Justice Minister for practicing law over a controversial court decision on a journalist jailed last year. Justice Minister Christina Ta was suspended from practicing law for six months following her decision to grant compassionate release to journalist Rodney Say. Ta released for from jail for 30 days after the journalist was hospitalized with malaria. Critics say the journalist's release did not follow the Liberian law. The suspension follows a series of fraud claims in the country, with President Elin Johnson's leave admitting last year that corruption is systematic and endemic. And finally, the White House has denounced comments by Israel's defense minister sharply critical of U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry. White House spokesperson Jay Carney was responding to reports that Moshe Yolan had said Kerry's pursuit of Middle East peace stemmed from an incomprehensible obsession and messianic feeling. Carney says to question Kerry's motives and distort his proposals is not something expected from the defense minister of a close ally. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it's 8.05 Central African time and you're, we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The petition filed in a Nairobi High Court by a Kenyan journalist, Walter Barasa, challenging the International Criminal Court's request to the authorities in Kenya to extradite him to The Hague has taken a new turn. The petition will be heard by a five-judge bench in the last week of this month. James Shumangula was in court and filed the following report. A Nairobi High Court has ruled that the petition filed by journalist Walter Marasa challenging the International Criminal Court request to extradite him to The Hague, Netherlands, will be heard by five Kenya High Court judges on the 28th of this month. In court to hear the ruling was Wilfred Nderitu, a lawyer representing victims of the 2007 ethnic violence that claimed more than 1,300 lives following a disputed presidential election. Nderitu explains what the Nairobi High Court ruling means. What it means is that uh, application challenging the constitutionality of the um, International Crimes Act will be had on the 28th of January. Shortly after Nderitu spoke, I caught up with Walter Barasa's lawyer, Kibe Mungai, and asked him to shed light on two petitions filed by the journalist Walter Barasa challenging the ICC extradition request. Uh, today the court has done two things. Huh? There were two petitions before the court. There was the first judgment, which was coming up to be delivered uh, today. And uh, the judge has directed that uh, the, the applications by the minister would be heard first ex parte, that is in the absence of Mr. Baraza, before the ruling that was coming up for today for, for delivery can be made. And this is going to be on the 31st of January. Mr. Baraza has indicated uh, to the court that he may be filing an application either before the High Court or in the Court of Appeal to challenge the directions of the court 
for any proceedings to be carried out in his absence. And uh, therefore, on that score, the judgment will be delivered on the 31st of January, unless uh, Mr. Baraza, in the meantime, is, uh, takes any actions that he thinks necessary. Then there was a second petition, which is basically challenging the issue concerning the validity of an ICC warrant based on the fact that, uh, according to Mr. Baraza, the Rome Statute did not apply in Kenya in the year 2007-2008 when the cases against the, His Excellency the President and His Excellency the Deputy President and Joshua Arab Sang were the offences were allegedly committed. And uh, accordingly, he is challenging that issue. Objections were raised on to whether or not these petitions are similar. And we are happy that uh, the judge has said that he does not regard them to be similar. And therefore, this matter would go back to Justice Lenaola for the determination on the question of our application for a, a five-judge bench to hear that petitions. And therefore, for today, and as an advocate for Mr. Baraza, we are happy on the, with the directions of the first petitions. On the second petition, that any proceedings be carried out in his absence, we shall be taking up the issue. That was Kenyan lawyer Kibe Mungai. During his brief submission in court, Mungai accused the ICC of undermining Kenya's constitution. He claimed that the ICC request violates Barasa's constitutional right. The ICC has accused Barasa of bribing witnesses in the trial of Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The force commander of dwindling UN troops during Rwanda's genocide has placed the blame for the catastrophe firmly at the door of the organization's member states. Ahead of an event in New York to mark the 20th anniversary of the facts he sent to UN headquarters on January 11th in 1994, detailing preparations of the extermination campaign, Canadian military man Lieutenant General Romeo Delaray lamented the fact that despite the many lessons learned and the new instruments available to the UN, mass atrocities remain a clear and present danger. Sean Bryce Peace reports from New York. The words of the UN commander Romeo Delier, played by Nick Nolte in the 2004 film Hotel Rwanda, a man credited with doing much to save lives with very little international support. The real Delier reflecting on what could have been prevented 20 years ago. We permitted extremism with the signs shown to us to implement a very deliberate plan of extermination of a very specific group of the population in order to not have to share power. That is what happened. And they did it. And they nearly completely succeeded, having destroyed over 700,000 of the 1.2 million Tutsis at the time. During 100 days between April and July 1994, more than 1 million Rwandans, mainly Tutsi, would perish in an ethnic cleansing that to this day shames the world. 
Rwanda's UN ambassador Richard Eugene Gathana. The 20th commemoration is an important occasion to remember the lives that were lost. To show solidarity with survivors and to recommit ourselves to the promise of never again in Rwanda or elsewhere in the world. The World in Action prompted a thorough review by the UN that would in 2005 lead it to establish an initiative known as the Responsibility to Protect, where the international community is able to intervene in countries where mass atrocities, particularly genocide, are occurring, thereby superseding a nation-state's claim to sovereignty. But Delier believes current conflicts around the world are evidence of how little the world has learned from Rwanda. Sovereignty is no more an absolute, for if a nation is massively abusing the human rights of its own people or can't stop it, we have the responsibility through the UN to intervene. So we've actually been given the tools to fight impunity in the field and not just in the courts afterwards. That door is open, but the nation states are reticent. They're reticent because self-interest still dominates. And the human being is still the lowest factor of intervention, let alone prevention. An instrument of prevention that is today failing the people of Syria, Central African Republic and Darfur, among others. Ambassador Gassana also slamming the failure to eliminate the Hutu rebel group, the FDLR, that continues to cause suffering along Rwanda's border in the eastern DRC. Monosco is there since 13 years. All of us here knows what FDLR represents. Unless they do otherwise, then I will say, okay, fine, they really learned a lesson. But it seems that they didn't at all. We know that it's a genocide of forces. It's actually ashamed. Ashamed to the UN paying all those mil billions of billions of dollars, and we know, we know very well that the FDLR are still there and they're not doing anything about it, against it. What do you want us to say about that? That they learned really a lesson? No. In marking the 20th anniversary, the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect has written an open letter to UN member states urging them to take concrete steps during this period that demonstrates their commitment to the prevention of mass atrocity crimes through national interventions and by ratifying relevant legal treaties that prevent and punish genocide. Sherman Bricepies at the United Nations, New York. The proposed government infrastructure development bill in South Africa has come under fire for various stakeholders. Parliament's Economic Development Portfolio Committee is conducting public hearings on the bill to facilitate the rollout of infrastructure projects. In last year's parliamentary opening address, the country's President Jacob Zuma announced a multi-billion dollar injection into such public projects over 20 years. This also aims to alleviate poverty and unemployment. The South African Local Government Association was among those who lamented the lack of proper consultation on the bill as well as its vagueness. Abongwe Kobokana reports. 
It was clear during the first public hearings on the bill that it has drawn unhappiness from various stakeholders. The main objective of the proposed piece of legislation is to fast-track infrastructure development throughout the country. Introducing the bill in Parliament last year, Economic Development Minister Ibrahim Patel had to make certain political promises. It ensures that we move beyond the stop-start pattern of infrastructure. It allows universities and FET colleges to tool up to produce the skills that are needed for the next 20 to 30 years. It gives investors the certainty that they need in order to commit to long-term investment in the domestic economy. The bill also aims to enhance the coordination of the country's planned strategic infrastructure projects known as SIPs. Once the bill is passed, it will give a statutory basis to the Presidential Infrastructure Coordinating Commission to be chaired by President Jacob Zuma. But organizations such as the South African Local Government Association warn that the bill in its current form is likely to sow confusion and undermine certain municipal bylaws. Max Mopariwa is from Salga. Our view on the issue of intrusion, we come from the view that, that says we've got three spheres of government that are interrelated. There are certain powers that are original powers that are given to municipalities. The fact that there are delays in terms of how projects are actually finalized within the municipal spaces, given that whatever project, be it private or public, the implementation of that, it takes place within municipal space. A lack of consultation and clarity were only two issues raised by Business Unit of South Africa, and this is in contrast with Patel's views that the bill will give investors the assurances they need for long-term investment in the domestic economy. Dr. Lorraine Lotta of Bosa says as it stands now, this bill does not speak to private infrastructure projects. In a senior council opinion by Jeremy Gauntlet, who agrees with us that the bill is not clear. And in his view, if, the, if there's not clarity on the, on the treatment of private projects, the, the bill would be unconstitutional. We, we have made that available to you. The senior council opinion or proposal in respect of uh, improving that matter, addressing that matter, we think is not necessarily completely elegant. We think there are other ways that we could deal with it. Another representative, this time from the Western Cape Department of Environmental Affairs and Development Planning, was in tune with other candidates. Paul Hardcastle also stressed a general lack of consultation on the bill. Two consultations still needed to happen on this, and that didn't happen. None of the provincial authorities, or certainly not us, or the local authorities we're involved with, um, have had a discussion in depth to really this fundamentally, fundamental act of a bill there's going to be major implications. There was not a one-on-one consultation with us. The committee seemed frustrated with the lack of alternative proposals, saying it had much criticism and legal in the line of solutions. Chairperson Elsie Coleman. Critics, but not easy to recommend, to come up, you know, clearly with recommendations or alternatives to, you know, what you're critiquing, because that's what we need. Yes, we agree that there are issues on, on approvals that you feel additional documents might be of, uh, you know, of, of uh, might be burdensome in, in a way, you know, or in addition to whatever that you have that is uh, at play currently.
But what would you suggest be done? The hearings continue. The work of Sato is expected to make its presentation to Parliament, Abongwe Kobogana's Parliament. South Africans living abroad will for the first time have an opportunity to cast their votes during this year's 2014 general elections at South Africa's missions. This follows a presidential assent to the Electoral Amendment Act No. 18 of 2013 and the publication of amendments to the regulations on the registration of voters late last year. This process is a collaboration between the Southern African Nations Independent Electoral Commission and the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, DERCO. Spokesperson at DERCO, Clayson Munyela, explains. The president of the country, President Jacob Zuma, has signed into law the electoral amendment on the electoral act, an amendment that makes it possible for South Africans who are abroad, in other words, outside the borders of South Africa, to register and vote in the 2014 election. We then met with the IEC, the Independent Electoral Commission, to partner and make it possible for South Africans abroad to utilize our 124 missions to register and as well as on the voting day, after the president announces the election date, they'll be able to once again go to the same missions and vote. So for now, we've advised all South Africans who are abroad to go to all our missions in 108 countries. We've got over 124 embassies, high commissions, consulates to go and register there. And by the way, an important fact is that if you're already registered in South Africa, you don't need to register again abroad but if you are abroad and haven't registered and you would like your name to be on the voters roll you have an opportunity to register now to put your name on the voters roll so all our missions are ready to register South Africans. How important is it for South Africans that are living abroad to actually participate in the country's elections in this case South Africa's elections this year? Look I mean a vote is an important democratic right that every South African must be able to exercise So if by any chance on the election day you will not be in South Africa, but you would still like to exercise your democratic right to vote, it's an important right that we shouldn't take for granted. For many decades in this country, a lot of people, the majority in fact, were not able to vote. So the right that all South Africans must be able to exercise, whether they are in the country or outside the country on election day. So it's important and that's why we welcome this amendment to the Act to allow South Africans to vote irrespective of which part of the world they'll be in. And that's why all our missions will be available to make sure that South Africans are able to vote. What items should they bring along with them when they're going to register and also when they're going to vote at those 124 missions? What you need if you're South African, a valid green barcoded identity document or ID and the form is very simple. All that you need is your ID barcoded and also have a physical address. So you say this is who I am, this is my ID and this is my address and then you're able to complete the form and register. If you don't have an ID, what you also can produce is a temporary identity certificate if you've lost your ID. Homosets will be able to give you that. All these new smart card IDs 
which have now been introduced. A few people have those, so a lot of people would have the green barcoded ID. Also, if you are outside the borders of Africa, if you are abroad, if you have, you will also need a valid passport issued by South African Home Affairs to be able to register. So that's what you need, a form of identification, either a green barcoded ID or temporary certificate or valid passport. Have you received any queries since the announcement was made that South Africans living abroad can actually be part of this year's general elections? Oh yes, we've received a lot of inquiries from all over the world, in fact, all regions of the world, even from South Africans who are here at home who suspect that by the election time they may be traveling. We're receiving a lot of inquiries about how they can register and whether if they've registered, they need to register again. And we're advising them that if you've already registered, if your name is on the voters' roll, you don't need to register again. You just need to notify the IEC in terms of where you will be after the election day is announced. And then your ballot uh, will follow you. You will access it at the South African Embassy or High Commission or Consulate in whatever country you will be in. And you'll be allowed to cast your vote. Will the embassies be ready when those people come? Are they ready already as we speak for people to come in and inquire or rather start registering? 100%. We've actually, even this morning, we met with the team that is coordinating all of this jointly with the IEC. In all our missions all over the world, our ambassadors have the requisite information and all their teams with that are individuals and officials dedicated to registering South Africans responding to inquiries as we get them. So, no, 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 all systems go. Our people are ready. We believe we will not encounter any problem. That was Clayson Munyela, spokesperson at the South African Department of International Relations and Cooperation, on the line talking to Tutungubeni. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's exactly 8.26 Central African time. India banished polio as it went three years without a single case. The conquest over the scourge marks the success of the world's biggest public health drive. But challenges remain for India, which is the world's diabetes capital and grapples with HIV, AIDS, diarrhea and malaria. Ranasen has more. It's very significant for both India and the global effort to eradicate polio. As you know, there's a worldwide effort to eradicate this disease. And India had long been regarded as the most technically challenging place from where to eradicate polio due to its population size, its population density, and other factors. And the fact that they achieved success really demonstrates that this is a disease that can and indeed must be eradicated. And really, it's a testimony to the extremely strong commitment and ownership by the government of India in protecting their children from lifelong polio paralysis, as well as by key partners, notably Rotary International. Without a polio case in over three years, does this mean that India is on its way to being certified as being polio-free? 
That's right. So individual countries don't actually become certified polio-free. It's an entire region that gets certified polio-free. So India, from a WHO administrative point of view, is part of the Southeast Asia region along with the other countries in that region. And so now, given that there's been no cases in any of the countries for three years, the region is on track to be certified. What has India done to keep the country polio-free over the last three years? The main thing that it's done is it really has maintained high vaccination coverage. It continues to make sure that all children are fully protected against polio, also reaching out with other vaccines, and that's really been the key to making sure that it hasn't been reinfected. But once a region or a country is certified to be polio-free, that's not the end of the road. The hard work begins, isn't it? That's right. This is a disease that can spread very easily and that can reinfect other areas of the world very easily. There's still three countries which are considered to be endemic to polio, meaning they've never eradicated polio. And those three countries are Nigeria, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as populations spread from those countries, as populations move, they can bring the virus with them and other countries can become reinfected. And so that risk will always remain until these last three endemic countries finish the job as well. And until that happens, countries like India need to make sure that all their children continue to be vaccinated so that if the country is reinfected, you don't have an outbreak. You have a population that is fully protected against this virus. And looking back at 2013, how would you say the control of polio has been throughout the world? I think what happened in 2013 is really something which underscored that this is a disease that cannot be controlled. We mentioned the three endemic countries, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, but we've also seen outbreaks in previously polio-free countries, notably in the Middle East with cases in Syria and in the Horn of Africa with the bulk of cases in Somalia. And as populations had moved from the endemic countries, these areas were reinfected. And so that really demonstrates the risk that polio anywhere in the world poses to children anywhere. And that's really the message, I think, from 2013. You've said the Horn of Africa was the bedrock of the polio outbreak in 2013. Were there any control measures that were put in place and how successful have they been? The outbreak was confirmed in May. And ever since then, there's been a very aggressive and very successful outbreak response being implemented right across the Horn of Africa. So not just in the epicenter, which is Somalia, but also in neighboring Ethiopia, in neighboring Kenya, in Uganda, in South Sudan. And so the effort has really been region-wide. And we're beginning to see the impact of those efforts as cases are on the decline in the Horn of Africa. So it's working. But what this outbreak really underscores is the need to completely eradicate the disease everywhere. Otherwise, you're going to keep seeing such outbreaks continue to occur. Finally, how would you say the drive is towards the total elimination of polio around the world? Would you say there is progress? For sure, there's progress. There's also been setbacks every time that you have outbreaks in previously polio-free countries, as we're seeing at the moment with Syria and the Horn of Africa. That's a setback. But you also have to look at the progress that's being achieved in the endemic countries, particularly in Afghanistan, particularly in Nigeria, and particularly also in many areas of Pakistan. But in Pakistan, there's one area of the country where you do have uncontrolled transmission of the virus. And I think the key to a global polio-free world lies right there. And Musa's up next with the headlines.
Good morning. Egypt is preparing for the second and final day of a referendum on the country's new constitution, a day after more than 10 people were killed in violent clashes. The deteriorating security and humanitarian situation in South Sudan, the Central African Republic and some parts of the Eastern DRC will top the agenda of the Great Lakes Region Summit in the Angolan capital Luanda today. And more than two and a half million people in the Central African Republic require food, health care and other humanitarian aid. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Four years on from the devastating earthquake that killed over 200,000 and left more than 2 million homeless in Haiti, humanitarian organization Red Cross is still working to help those living in temporary camps into new permanent homes. The number of families still living in camps has continued to decline and about 89% of those displaced by the catastrophe have left the camps. The Red Cross Red Crescent Societies has reaffirmed its commitment to fostering secure, resilient and healthy communities in Haiti. Alexandra Clodong de Venisi is IFRC's Haiti representative and starts by addressing the issue of stability in the country. The 39-year-old contracted the fever from a multicolored tick. Health officials in the Western Cape province have described her condition as serious but stable. Provincial Health spokesperson Darren Francis says the woman is being closely monitored and has allayed any feelings of panic amongst the public. It is an isolated case. She is critical but in a stable condition. So doctors are satisfied. Congo fever rarely happens and this is one case that happened in quite a number of years. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases has warned people who love spending time outdoors to protect themselves against tick bites. The Institute's Deputy Director, Professor Lucille Bremberg, says many people are at risk of contracting a disease known as tick bite fever at this time of the year. She says those who love to go hiking or walking in the open felt should apply insect repellent. Treatment is really supportive treatment. So the patients often bleed because they have low levels of platelets, which is a component of blood that is important for clotting. So you can replace those. There is a drug called ribavirin, which may have some effect. The majority, in fact, get better on their own. People with Congo fever suffer from flu-like symptoms and hemorrhaging. According to the World Health Organization, WHO, the fever is primarily transmitted to people from ticks and livestock animals. Human-to-human transmission can occur from close contact with the blood, secretions, organs or other bodily fluids of infected persons. There is no vaccine available for either people or animals. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Mapari in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A report by the United Nations found that from 2011 there have been more than 140 recorded disasters in Africa. These include 19 droughts and 67 flood events which have affected millions of people across the continent. According to the Disaster Risk Reduction in Africa report, these disasters have caused an economic loss loss of $1.3 billion. The report compiled by the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction also found that between 2001 and 2010, there were 125 so-called hydrometeorological events in Africa. Benjamin Mushatama reports. Disasters in the continent are changing in various forms, for example in geography, frequency and impact. In recent years, many Africans have been affected by drought, climate change and urbanization which cause dangerous risks associated with slums in urban areas. The executive summary of the Disaster Risk Reduction in Africa report was recently released by the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction or the UNISDR. The report highlighted large numbers, over 147 recorded disasters which took place since 2011 and 2012 and of course an economic loss of over $1 billion in Africa. Aminesh Kumar is the program officer from the UNISDR Nairobi offices in Kenya. Yeah, if you look at some of the statistics of the disaster events which have happened in the last few years, for example, in the decade from 1990 to 2012, Africa experienced an average of 152 disasters per year. And if you look at the year 2012 alone, Around 37 million people in the region were directly affected by around 147 recorded disasters. The UNISDR says that in 2012 alone, over 34 Africans have been affected by drought and extreme temperatures. Kumar says that climate change has increased environmental hazards and left many populations on the continent affected by drought. If you look at the specifics, the drought continues to have the most severe impact. Over 16 million people in the Sahel region and almost 13 million people in the Horn of Africa suffered from droughts during years 2011 and 12. And conversely, around Two million people were killed or affected by hydrological disasters in Africa, majorly droughts and floods, in year 2012 and around 1.4 million people in 2011. What is more interesting is the areas which are previously not affected by disasters are getting affected by new disasters. For example, last year, the devastating cyclones that affected Somalia, which normally and traditionally has been affected by drought, is a new case in point. So we see that new geographies and intensity and magnitude of disasters are increasing in Africa over time. United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction also states that although urbanization in the continent being the highest rate in the world at 40% is not a disaster by itself, when it is unplanned it creates dangerous patterns of risk accumulation and exposes populations to floods, epidemics and other hazards. Sharon Rusu, head of office at the UNISDR Nairobi office, explains. It's not in itself a disaster risk. It's because of that kind of combination of the rapid and unplanned um, unplanned settlements of people and the attraction of urban centers to people who formerly lived in agricultural context that has caused an alarming rate of growth uh, of urban slums and not just in Africa but worldwide. And this is creating a potential for risk accumulation and uh, for the exposure of large 
proportions of populations to hazards. For example, Nairobi right now has 4 million people. And in 30 years, the projection is that it will have over 14 million people. In the 2010, the World Disasters Report reported that half of Nairobi's population lives in informal settlements. And when you connect that with the fact that Africa itself as a continent currently has the highest rate of urbanization in the world, with almost 40% of Africans now living in cities or urban environments, it's an enormous stress on everyone. Well, most importantly, those people who live in the informal settlements within these big cities. It is true that disaster risk management is a challenge for the continent of Africa. However, governments in Africa are moving forward to implementing their own regional and national objectives in responding to the challenges. These steps include achieving the agreements that were laid out by the Hyogo Framework for Action by the African Union, which has its time frame extended to 2015. That report by Benjamin Mushatama. South Africa's mining activity increased by 5.1% year-on-year in November, with gold recording the highest growth rate. The sector has been under immense pressure and has in the past year been a laggard for GDP growth as muted demand and threats of strike action plagued the sector. Dimakazo Lishoro has more. The 5.1% growth came in below market expectation of 7%, while on a month-on-month basis, production decreased by 2.9% in November compared to October. The industry has been struggling to recover from crippling and violent strikes of 2012, and while the growth is good news, it may be short-lived if unions carry out their strike action threat. Members of unions, the National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, and the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union, AMCU, in the platinum sector are to be ready to go on strike if mining companies do not give in to their demands. But mining analyst Stan Lipguabasnell says going on strike will have major repercussions for the industry and for the workers. We've heard about a lot of debt that's been incurred over the last couple of years um, You know, in, in the periods where they, where they did went on strike and then had to revert themselves to unsecured credit. And, and we've seen how unsecured credit has been expanding. But um, certainly that uh, the activity in the unsecured credit markets have been slowing down and slowing down and 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 certainly there's a lot of these operators that are not keen on lending a lot more money um, at the moment so if there's no money coming in no work no pay um, it, it certainly is a, is, is a tough position I think where, where workers will be left if they have to pay um, you know service a lot of these outstanding debt and still then being able to service their day-to-day living requirements Stephen Bainke is an analyst at Imara SP Reed says any strike action will weigh heavily on the sector given the large weight that platinum mining carries in overall mining. We desperately need the strikes to be avoided if possible or as short as possible and uh, we really need to get our act together because platinum is very important. This will not bode well for GDP growth in the first quarter at least with the rent hovering near five-year lows against the dollar in early trade today. This has concerns about the weak outlook for the economy dampened investor appetite. In Johannesburg, Amdi Magazzolishoro. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
The price of meat products in South Africa could rise by up to 15% in the next six months. Agricultural economist Professor Johan Willemser says a 30% rise in the maize price and the devastating drought in the Northern Cape and the Northwest Province are contributing to the increase. Farmers' organizations say government is partly to blame as they are not providing any assistance. Anel Heidenrich reports. Farmers are being forced to feed their animals because of the drought. It's an expensive exercise and because of that, farmers are opting to slaughter their livestock. Agricultural economists warn that once the drought is broken, farmers will start rebuilding their stocks, resulting in shortages. Countries from where red meat is imported, such as Botswana and Namibia, are also experiencing severe droughts, so importing is not an option. The weak rand will make imports even more expensive. Farmers blame the Department of Agriculture for not providing drought relief and consumers fear meat prices will become extremely high over the next six months. Agricultural economist at the University of the Free State, Professor Johan Willemse, says the crisis that farmers are currently experiencing will severely damage the country's economic growth for the next year. The outlook currently is that our economic growth rate will again be quite slow and part of that is that consumers don't have spending power because remember you need first to buy food. So as food gets more expensive, there's less money left for other products and that puts a drag on the economy and consumer spending and has a severe impact on economic growth. Livestock farmer and chairperson for the Red Meat Producers Organization in the Northern Cape, James Farber, says the situation on the farms is dire. We see a real shortage of fodder at this time in the Northern Cape. And it rained some bit on some farms, but it is little for the most of the province. So we haven't got any resources. And, you know, there's, there's all, nothing from government side that we see has been happening to get some fodder or relief for the farmers. Willemse says this will result in serious shortages and high prices for animal products. So what we expect is once the drought has been broken is that livestock farmers will start building stocks, reduce the supply of, of red meat in the market, and that goes also for chicken and milk products and pork, and that prices will increase. We always say that, yes, we can import the products. We don't have to produce it. Import is very expensive through the exchange rate, and that is also forcing our prices. The CEO of Agri-Northern Cape, Johan van Rensburg, says government has failed the farmers in the Northern Cape. The expectation is there that government must assist farmers when there is uh, difficulties like uh, like droughts. But that's what our expectation is, but nothing has happened since. Repeated attempts to get comment from the Northern Cape Department of Agriculture were unsuccessful. Anel Heidenrich in Kimberley. With Sandy Matabula up next with our economics news. Thanks, Lulu. The World Bank raised its focus for global growth for the first time in three years as advanced economies started to pick up pace and led by the U.S. The rosier outlook suggests that the world economy is finally breaking free from a long and sluggish recovery after the global financial crisis. The poverty-fighting institution has predicted that global gross domestic product will expand 3.2% this year from 2.4% 
last year. The bank again uh, shaved its forecast for developing countries to 5.3% for 2014 from 5.6%, which it predicted in June. Meanwhile, the South African rand has touched a fresh five-year lows and could breach the 11 to the dollar level soon due to the economy's weak fundamentals and the threat of platinum sector strikes. The rand was at 10.89 to the greenback yesterday. Labor union AMCO says its members have voted to strike at implants while they canvass workers at implants and loan uh, platinum mines. Mining analyst Corbis Nell says if all three platinum houses shut down, supply and revenue will be hit hard. In terms of revenue for the whole basket, it's probably between 150 and 200 million rand per day that will obviously be lost if, if no production actually happens. If there's no money coming in, no work, no pay, it certainly is a tough position, I think, where workers will be left if they have to pay, you know, service a lot of these outstanding debt and still then being able to service their day-to-day living requirements. A cabinet minister in southern Zambia, Daniel Mukombe, has uh, conveyed uh, government's efforts made by energy watch groups across the country to encourage uh, communities to adopt methods that will lead to energy efficiency and plans to switch to alternative sources of energy. Hilda Akikelwa has more. Opening the third annual Consumer Watch Group conference in Livingston, Southern Province Minister Daniel Mungkombwe said their sacrifices have not been in vain. He said watch group members have been very critical in reaching out to consumers and stakeholders, especially in remote areas of the country. Mr Mungkombwe, however, requested the watch group members to also pay much focus on the problem of illegal fuel vending that in the long run damage vehicles. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar at 10.66 to the rand at 8.58 Botswana Pulas, 5.65 Zambian Kwachas, also at 0.61 to the British pound, at 0.73 to the euro. Commodities, gold $1,243, platinum $1,426, a fine ounce and uh, brand crude oil $106.03 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you, Isani. Up next is Tommy Kluza with our sports update. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer. Ethiopian coach Sunet Bishaw recalls that his side can bounce back from the disappointing 2 0 defeat at the hands of North African side Libya, but says that his team needs a new mentality to change their fortunes. Ethiopians will be pinning their hopes on returning to their style in their next game against Congo Brazzaville. Here is Ethiopian coach Sunet Bishaw.
We do apologize for that. At Ngoi's penalty spot was enough to hand Democratic Republic of Congo the DRC maximum points in their opening game in Group D of the African Nation Championship Chan at the Peter Mukaba Stadium last night. DRC beat deputant Moratania 1-0 victory in front of a handful of supporters in a game that had plenty of drama. DRC coach Santo Muntumbile was given a red card for dissent. Even so, his assistant Papi Kimoto says that they are happy to kick the tournament with a hard-fought win. The three points that we have uh, got, yes, it was not very easy and uh, there were many weaknesses, but uh, our main objective is, it was to get the three points and uh, we are very happy. And uh, We knew that uh, it was not, it's not going to be an easy game because we, they, they, the Senegal, uh, Mauritanian team, we, we, we know that they have uh, eliminated, eliminated Cameroon, I think, Senegal, Senegal and uh, we were aware of that and then uh, we, we wanted to, to work a little bit about the circulation of the ball, but uh, we wanted really to play this game. And now let's go back to the first story where Ethiopian coach Sunet Bishore reckons that his side can bounce back from the disappointing 2-0 defeat at the hands of North African side Libya, but says that his team needs a new mentality to change their fortunes. This game has already passed, so we start you know, a new game and with uh, a new uh, moral, a new mentality and understanding and a new courage for, uh, to win uh, the coming games. Uh, we know that it will be very challenging, uh, even though uh, it will be uh, for us a decisive one, so we will try to win. South Africa's Bafana Bafana coach Gordon Igesand is likely to make two or three changes in today's crucial African Nations Championship encounter against Mali at the Cape Town Stadium. Speaking before the final training session ahead of the game, Igesand says to counter the physical and tall Malians, a pacey game will be the answer. A win for Bafana in this game will put them in a pole position to advance to the quarterfinals. Here's Bafana coach Gordon Igesand. I am contemplating making one or two changes or three changes in certain areas. You know, like I say, it's totally a different game. I want to have a bit more pace uh, going forward. I want to get behind them. There's a couple of players that did very well when they came on, so we'll see, you know. But obviously, if whatever change I make will be totally tactical changes. Some of the changes that Igesant is likely to make could be in the midfield and up front and bring in a mobile striker that will toss around the towering defenders of Mali. We're playing against a very good team, a very physical, very big team in actual fact, you know, as, as far as height is concerned. So we've been working hard on keeping the ball, making quick passes, playing quickly, one touch, two touch if we can. You know, we don't want to get into a tussle with this team because I think if we do that, we'll come off second best. You know, strength, they've got, they've got a lot more strength than we have as far as physic, physicality is concerned. So we need to be clever, use the ball well, and, uh, you know, I want to be more uh, penetrative than we were the, the first game. I want to get behind them. So uh, the message has been very clear, you know, we've got to, we've got to get a result in this game and, uh, and so we know where we are. And now in boxing, Floyd Mayweather Jr. will arrive in South Africa for a visit that the government hopes will help resuscitate boxing in the country. The sports ministry announced Mayweather will arrive today for a nearly week-long visit, his first to Africa and a triumph for the country, which finally got its meant after trying to lower the 36-year-old superstar as a guest of honor at the National Sports Awards last year. The Minister of Sports and Recreation also announced that the boxer nicknamed Money had not been paid any fees to come. Mayweather's 
Hours schedule will include an exhibition at a gym in the Johannesburg Township of Soweto and possibly a visit to late South African President Nelson Mandela's apartheid era jail on Robben Island when he's in Cape Town. Mayweather will also visit Bloemfontein in East London on the southeast coast, the city regarded as the hotbed of the South African boxing. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. A petition filed in a Nairobi High Court by a Kenyan journalist challenging the ICC's request to extradite him to The Hague takes a new turn. And the force commander of UN troops during Rwanda's genocide has placed the blame for the catastrophe at the door of the organization's member states. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebo Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Dunokwe with Msheli Wami. Bella
Zomomola, zaupela, wemjeliwa.